Hey everybody, uh, first of all I want to apologize that this uh, recording is a little bit late. I'm recording it at about 11.20 a.m. I wasn't able to get to it yesterday, but it's going to be a relatively short lecture. I basically want to just talk about three things. Uh, the, first of all, very briefly, distinguishing confidentiality from the attorney-client privilege. Then the bulk of today's lecture will be walking through the elements of attorney-client privilege. I want to explain some of the ambiguous or confusing uh, elements of that. And then finally, just a brief introduction to attorney work product doctrine. I want this lecture to give you a good understanding of attorney-client privilege before we talk about the exceptions to privilege and the application of attorney-client privilege to corporations. And we'll talk about those topics on Monday. I have a table here to sort of bring uh, do the transition between confidentiality and attorney-client privilege. As we know, uh, confidentiality is an ethical duty. It's the obligation of the lawyer to protect any information relating to the representation of a client. Attorney-client privilege, as the name privilege should tell us, is an evidentiary rule. And what it does is protects communications, not information. It protects only communications, not the underlying information. Confidentiality means that a lawyer must refrain from voluntarily disclosing information unless one of the exception applies and also the lawyer must take care to protect inadvertent disclosures of confidential information. Attorney-client privilege applies in a situation where another party seeks to compel either the lawyer or the client to testify or to produce documents and it must be asserted by the lawyer in litigation in court. And finally, confidentiality, because it is an uh, ethical duty, is enforced by professional discipline for breach of confidentiality, ranging from, as we've discussed, uh, from censure to suspension to disbarment. Attorney-client privilege, it's an evidentiary matter, so you handle it the same way you do with other evidentiary matters. Attorney-client privilege, because it is a privilege with, which protects certain kinds of evidence that ought not to be included in litigation means that it's enforced either by quashing a subpoena if evidence or testimony or documents have been sought or by filing or by moving to exclude uh, such communication from evidence. So because this is a, an evidentiary matter, not an ethical rule, we're going to find uh, the, the best discussion of this in the restatement. And we can start with Restatement Section 68, defining the four elements of attorney-client privilege. And it's, uh, the rule says the attorney-client privilege may be invoked with respect to, one, a communication, two, between privileged persons, three, in confidence, and four, for the purpose of obtaining or providing legal assistance for the client. So let's go through the next, the next following sections go through each one of those terms in that definition. 669 defines communication, and for our purposes, uh, for the purpose of attorney-client privilege, a communication is any expression, which means it could be uh, written, could be verbal, oral, could be a, a gesture, could be any kind of expression, physical or verbal, that a privileged person undertakes to convey information to another privileged person 
and any document or other record revealing such an expression. So the key here is what do we mean by expression? What kinds of expressions are included within the definition of a communication for attorney-client privilege purposes? A communication can exclude things like nonverbal communicative acts intended to convey information. For instance, a client may communicate with a lawyer through facial expressions or other communicative body, bodily motions or gestures. So an example, suppose you are suppose you are assigned to represent a criminal defendant against an armed robbery charge. You know from news reports about the robbery that the victim said the robber had a tattoo of a snake on his left forearm. So you walk into the interview room to meet with your client. He is wearing a t-shirt and you notice a tattoo of a snake on his left forearm. The fact that he has a tattoo like the alleged robbers is information, not a communication, and therefore the privilege does not apply. Uh, instead though, imagine you walk into the inter interview room to talk with your client. He's wearing a long sleeve shirt this time. You ask him if he has a tattoo on his left arm, and he rolls up his sleeve revealing a tattoo of a snake. Rolling up the sleeve in response to your question is a communicative act. So you may not be called to testify about whether your client told you that he had a tattoo. Section 70 defines privileged persons. Privileged persons are the client and the client's lawyer. Client can, can include a, a prospective client, someone who comes to see the lawyer about possibly representing them, but does not end up hiring that lawyer. There's, that's called a prospective client and they're still protected under attorney-client privilege. So, privileged persons include the client, the client's lawyer, agents of either the lawyer or the client who facilitate communications between them, often called an agent for communication, and then agents of the lawyer who facilitate the representation. Okay, so let's try and follow that distinction here. So, first of all, what is a client agent for communication? A person is a confidential information for communication if that person's participation is reasonably necessary to facilitate the client's communication with a lawyer and if the client reasonably believes that the person will hold the communication in confidence. So an example, remember the Togstad versus Veasley case from Chapter 3. When Mrs. Togstad went to see Attorney Miller, she was accompanied by her husband's work supervisor, Ted Buckholz. One of the first things Miller should have done is ask, why is he here? And probably he was a friend of the couple and was there for moral support for Mrs. Togstad. That does not make him an agent for communication. Miller should have asked him to wait outside while he, while he met with Mrs. Togstad. Otherwise, any communications between Miller and Mrs. Togstad privilege would not apply. What makes a, uh, an agent for communication? Comment F says a, a client's agent for communication is determined by uh, various relevant factors, including the customary relationship between the client and the asserted agent. For example, um, client accountant, uh, patient physician, different things like that. The nature of the communication and the need, the client's need for that third person's presence to communicate effectively with the lawyer or to understand and act upon the lawyer's advice. A lawyer's agent 
also is can be a privileged person. A lawyer's agent would be someone engaged by the lawyer to assist in the representation, and that includes uh, staff members like uh, secretaries, file clerks, computer operators, investigators, office managers, paralegals, uh, IT assist, IT staff, other people around the law office. It also includes something uh, any sort of independent contractors like perhaps uh, an expert witness. Uh, social worker if they're if that sort of person service is necessary in the representation the idea is that those contractors those outside professionals or other people uh, should be retained by the lawyer otherwise they're not covered under the lawyer's agent protection they're not considered privileged persons if they're unless they're brought in by the lawyer if the client goes out and gets a, a forensic accountant or something like that uh, their their communications would not be privileged. So make sure that it's the lawyer who does, takes care of that. Next, uh, section 71, in confidence. And this is, uh, interestingly, sort of very fact-dependent. A communication is in confidence if, at the time and in the circumstances of the communication, the communicating person reasonably, reasonably believes that no one will learn the contents of the communication except another privileged person or another person with whom communications are protected under a similar privilege. What does that mean? Okay, it means under the circumstances of the communication, the communicating party could either be the, the client or the lawyer has a reasonable belief that they won't be overheard, that no one will learn the contents of the communication. Uh, that would, ex that would uh, not include things like, again, one of these privileged agents of, uh, for communication or an agent of the lawyer. Those people can, be, can hang around. And another person with whom communications are protected under a similar privilege, again, might be uh, client, uh, patient, physician privilege, uh, priest, penitent privilege, things like that. So what do we mean by the circumstances? You have to look at the situation in which the communication took place. If it's clear that the communicating person should know or knows that a non-privileged person can hear it, it's not confidential. For example, in the comment here, a client may talk with a lawyer in a loud voice in a public place where non-privileged non persons could readily overhear. That is not a conversation in confidence. Sometimes exigent circumstances will apply, though. It might be that uh, because of time constraints or uh, space constraints or other sorts of uh, issues that the client and lawyer may have to communicate in situations where ordinary precautions for confidentiality are impossible. In that case, what essentially happens is that the, the law decides to treat that conversation as confidential where the, the parties took reasonable effort to, con to make it as confidential as possible, that they took reasonable precautions under the circumstances. Here's an example. During a recess in a trial, client and lawyer walk out into a courthouse corridor crowded with other persons attending the trial and discuss client's intended testimony in tones loud enough to be readily overheard by bystanders. Lawyer knows that the courthouse has several areas more appropriate for a confidential conversation than the corridor. 
In this instance, the court or conversation is not in confidence for the privilege, purpose of the privilege, and it's not protected by attorney-client privilege, and either client or lawyer may be examined in court concerning the conversation. However, suppose it's only a five-minute recess and the lawyer knows that every empty office and courtroom is locked because of security concerns. The lawyer and client go and find a relatively quiet corner and speak in hushed tones, whispering to each other perhaps, making sure that nobody is close enough to hear. In that case, the conversation would probably be in confidence and would be protected under the privilege. And the fourth element, section 72, legal assistance as the object of a privileged communication. So what this means is that communications are privileged only if they were made for the purpose of either obtaining or providing legal assistance. Not every conversation with a lawyer is privileged. So a communication is made for the purpose of obtaining or providing legal assistance if it's made to a lawyer or someone the client reasonably believes to be a lawyer. We'll get to what that means in a second. So first of all, it has to be a communication to a lawyer and one where the client or prospective client is consulting for the purpose of obtaining legal assistance. So first of all, what is that first section? Uh, what does it mean someone the client that the client reasonably believes is a lawyer? This is for a situation where perhaps a lawyer from another jurisdiction is uh, involved in a case, or the law client speaks to a lawyer from another jurisdiction thinking that they are admitted in the relevant jurisdiction. Someone who is admitted to practice law in Pennsylvania, for example, is not a lawyer in New York unless they're also admitted in New York. So for, uh, if the client happens to speak to someone, maybe a, a lawyer that he knows from school who happens to practice in Philadelphia and talks about this, this uh, a problem that he has, well, the lawyer should advise him to go speak to a lawyer in New York, if it's a New Yorker, and, but nonetheless, his conversations with that foreign lawyer are protected by attorney-client privilege. Second question, what does legal assistance mean? There's not a very clear definition of legal assistance. I think we talked about this when we discussed unauthorized practice of law. The definition in the restatement is uh, a lawyer's assistance is legal in nature if the lawyer's professional skill and training would have value in the matter. So, if a lawyer is playing golf with a friend and gives the friend some advice on the proper stance uh, or how to hold the club or something like that, that is not legal assistance simply because the guy giving the advice is a lawyer. It has to be something where the lawyer's skills and training have some value in the matter. Maybe you're advising the client uh, not to hit someone in the head and cause a concussion and be subject to tort liability. The comment goes on that to claim privilege, uh, the, cl the claimant must have consulted the lawyer to obtain legal counseling or advice, document preparation, litigation services, or other assistance customarily performed by lawyers in their professional capacity. Also not privileged are communications with a person who happens to be a lawyer, but who performs a predominantly business function within an organization. For example, um, a corporation may have a board of directors and there may be a lawyer or two on that board of directors. That does not make every board of directors meeting or every conversation 
where that lawyer happens to be involved or every memo that the lawyer is, you know, is copied on does not make every one of those privileged. It has to be, if, it, if it's a primarily business function or business matter that's being discussed. However, if that director who is a lawyer is working as a lawyer in that particular instance, then yes, the, the, the privilege would apply. We'll go through these rules again in class on Monday with a number of examples. We'll sort of have a, a quick um, pop quiz where I will call on people. I'll give you a fact situation and ask you to determine whether you think privilege applies or not. And finally for today, I want to talk about work product. Work product immunity is a relatively re recent development. By that I mean I think around the 1940s it, uh, it evolved. So we need to distinguish work product again from both confidentiality and from attorney-client privilege. Work product essentially protects the work that the lawyer did for the client. And the degree of protection depends on the kind of work it is. Work product consists of tangible material or its tangible equivalent in unwritten or oral form. So that means the lawyer's notes from uh, discussions with the client, uh, from research that he's done, maybe interviews with witnesses and so on. It includes those notes and also uh, any testimony about those notes. So the, uh, it protects both the written documents and it protects the lawyer from being asked about the written documents. However, it has to be material that is prepared by a lawyer for litigation in progress or in reasonable anticipation of future litigation. So obviously not, you know, not everything written on paper by a lawyer is protected by work product. It has to be in connection with litigation, with representation, and specifically with litigation, not just transactional work and so on. So it has to be prepared by a lawyer for litigation in progress or in reasonable anticipation of future litigation. Perhaps you know, so say, let's say your corporate client uh, you learn has involved, been involved in dumping chemical waste into the uh, local river or something like that. There's no charges yet. Maybe it's not public yet, but you know that it will be. And so you begin to prepare your client's defense. That would be in reasonable anticipation of future litigation. Work product is distinguished into two types. We have opinion work product which includes opinions or mental impressions of a lawyer, things like uh, potential strategies that the lawyer might use. Anything other than that is ordinary work product. Ordinary work product is protected, but can be obtained uh, in the proper circumstances. Uh, it is immune from discovery or other compelled disclosure unless an exception applies or the person trying to get at the work product has a substantial need for the material to prepare for trial and can't get the substantial equivalent of the material by other means without undue hardship. So, uh, and this again is sort of a practical uh, test. An example, for example, uh, an example might be several witnesses testify before a grand jury investigating the publishing industry. Shortly after, lawyer for publisher debriefs the witnesses and writes memoranda of those interviews in anticipation of the possible indictment of the publisher and later civil suits. Six years later, 
plaintiffs in another related matter representing a class of consumers file an antitrust class action against the publisher, and they seek discovery of the non-opinion work product portions of lawyer's debriefing memo. So they want to get the lawyer's notes uh, on what the witnesses said in this discussion, in this, uh, in this grand, uh, grand jury. If the plaintiffs have been diligent in preparing their case and gathering evidence through other means, and now the witnesses are unable to recall the event, so they can't, they can't duplicate it. They can't get at that testimony anew. So in that sort of situation, the court may order that the memoranda be produced. Opinion work product, however, is almost impossible to obtain. Opinion work product is immune from discovery or compelled disclosure unless immunity is waived or there's an exception or extraordinary circumstances justify the disclosure. So the difference again, ordinary work product uh, is... Uh, may be ordered to be produced if there's a substantial need and the person or the party requesting the work product it can't get this can't reproduce it without undue hardship opinion work product requires extraordinary circumstances and it, perhaps it's hard to distinguish undue hardship from extraordinary circumstances but in in practice, as these terms are applied, extraordinary circumstances are almost never found. So opinion work product is virtually immune from discovery. So let me close this with another table, sort of bringing all, all of this together. Confidentiality, attorney-client privilege, and work product. Okay, so, uh, confidentiality is an ethical duty. Attorney-client privilege is a common law evidentiary rule. Work product comes from the common law and is defined, in fact, in the civil procedure rules. What do they protect? Confidentiality protects any information from any source relating to representation of a client. Attorney-client protects communications, not information. Just the communications in, in which that, that information may be conveyed has to be communications between privileged persons, has to be in confidence, and for the purpose of obtaining or receiving or giving legal assistance. Work product includes notes and other material prepared by a lawyer for litigation in progress or in anticipation of litigation. And I add uh, lawyer or party or agent because the federal rules definition of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure definition include a work product produced also by the party themselves or perhaps like an accountant that they've hired, but again in anticipation of litigation or for litigation in progress. The restatement definition of work product is limited to lawyers only. And it is distinguished, uh, it distinguishes between opinion work product which is almost impossible to obtain, an ordinary work product which in some instances the other party can get at it. Nature of protection, lawyer confidentiality is a duty of the lawyer to protect from disclosure any of that information uh, relating to the representation, whether it's compelled or voluntary. So that's why we have those exceptions. Remember we have exceptions that say a lawyer may reveal information to prevent substantial uh, 
reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. That's an instance where um, maybe nobody's asking the lawyer, but the lawyer has information that perhaps they would like to reveal to protect, you know, to protect an innocent party, something like that. So I, I, turn, I tend to think of confidentiality as applying frequently where the disclosure may be voluntary. Attorney-client privilege uh, applies uh, to protect either the attorney or the client from being compelled to testify, either through a subpoena or something like that, being, being compelled to testify in court or other proceeding about those protected communications. And work product usually applies uh, at the stage of pretrial discovery. There are limits to each of these. Confidentiality can be, uh, obviously, the client, the client can give informed consent. There can be applied authorization. And then there's the whole list of uh, exceptions in Model Rule 1.6b. Attorney-client privilege belongs to the client. The client may waive the privilege even if the lawyer objects. The lawyer may not waive the privilege unless authorized to do so by the client. And the major exception is the crime-fraud exception, which we'll talk about on Monday. And as we've talked about work product, there are two kinds. The work product, ordinary work product, protection can be overcome if there's substantial need and it would be an undue hardship to get that information or that material in any other way. Opinion work product is immune from production. How do you enforce these protections? Confidentiality being an ethical duty, if you breach that duty, the lawyer is subject to disciplinary sanctions. Attorney-client privilege, that usually means that the, the communications you're trying to protect are going to be introduced into evidence. So you can either quash this, move to quash a subpoena, object to a discovery request, uh, object to a, a question during, during a, a examination, and so on. If the judge Wrong, you, you believe wrongly orders uh, the disclosure, you can appeal that. So that's the basis for appeal. And in work product protection, generally, uh, the, the remedy is to exclude that material from discovery. So I think that'll get you started on uh, Chapter 4. And Wednesday is the mid, uh, midterm exam, so I'm not going to talk about that. So I'll see you on Monday. hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and uh, stay dry and warm. Bye, everybody.